welcome. This is a Vascular Forum interview. Welcome to this new episode of the Vascular Forum interviews. Today, we're going to talk about training programs, education and skill development during the vascular surgery residency. With us today, we have Drs. Isabel van Herzele and Colin Bicknell. Isabel van Herzele is an associate professor at the Department of Thoracic and Vascular Surgery at the University Hospital in Ghent, Belgium. She obtained her PhD in 2009 for virtual reality and a vascular simulation, ready of training a fund for scientific research with which she has investigated the impact of structured stepwise simulation-based training on technical and team skills for basic, advanced, and complex endovascular procedures, and is focusing on learn from errors, near misses, optimization of patient safety and teamwork in a hybrid ANGIS suite. She is the chairwoman of the Accreditation Review Board of NASE, Network of Accredited Skill Centers in Europe of the European Union of Medical Specialists, as well as the former president of the Dutch Society of Simulation and Healthcare, associate editor of the European Journal of Vascular and Endovascular Surgery, and an active member of the European Guidelines for Carotid and Aneurysmal Disease, as well as for Radiation Protection. Colin Bicknell is a reader and consultant vascular surgeon at the Imperial College of London, his academic research interests include the examination of methods to reduce error in vascular surgery procedures. In fact, he is the chief investigator of a multi-center study to examine the landscape of errors in aortic procedures, the LIEP study, which has led to the initiation of a unique team training program at the Imperial College. He is president of the British Society of Endovascular Therapy, and is a board member of the Section of Surgery Council and the Education Reference Group at the UK Royal Society of Medicine. Welcome to the Vascular Forum interviews. We're very happy to be here. Thank you very much. So to kick off, I would like to ask both of you how and why you chose to dedicate such a substantial part of your careers to the development of education and simulation projects. Well, I was actually a bit drawn into this by the people from Imperial College London because I had decided to do a PhD and I wanted to do a PhD on thoracoabdominal aortic aneurysm repair, as we all want to do. But some other people like Professor Cheshire and Roger Agarwal had other plans for me. And so they decided that I had to come up with a curriculum for endovascular training using simulation. And that's how I got involved and I'm still involved and I had the opportunity to defend my PhD in Ghent successfully a couple of years later. So I owe this all to uh, our friends from Imperial College London. So we stem from the same seed in Imperial College. I did my research there and then I did a mini clinical years there training. So I was influenced really by Raj, Haradazi, Nick Cheshire, and Isabel was there also doing studies in simulation. And it's almost entwined within the fabric of Imperial College, the simulation and training agenda. So it was always part of what I did. But I didn't really get into having a large part of my career dedicated to it until really I, I got interested in looking at safety within vascular surgery, particularly with Charles Vincent and some of the other really good people who looked at safety at Imperial College. And it was really, as you mentioned, that landscape of error in aortic procedure study, which highlighted the need for looking at training and team training and simulations in the obvious vehicle to study that more often. So that's when I got a bit more interested and took more time out to study it. 
Was this when you were a medical student or were you already through your residency program or was this at, you know, a young consultant or intermediate consultant level? When did this kind of interest start growing? For me, that was as I was a research fellow once I was five years out of medical school, probably. And then throughout the higher surgical training and then into my junior consultant years, which I'm still in, of course. Yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) For me, it actually started immediately after my training because I had decided I had moved to a private hospital to do vascular surgery. I was really disappointed because I missed training, challenging cases, education. So I moved back to Imperial College London. And so that's when I got involved. And I never realized how it actually continued to influence the rest of my life, which it still does, because I I combine it both by by teaching, but also by doing some scientific work focusing and research focusing on safety, training, etc. So I would like to also take the opportunity of having two experts from different countries and different residency programs to elaborate a little bit on the different residency programs in Belgium and in the UK. Yeah, I think in Belgium, we're really running behind if you compare it to the rest of Europe. So vascular surgery is still not an officially recognized specialty. So we're still part of general surgery, which implies that at the moment, we're all doing six years of general surgery immediately after medical school, which is gradually changing. So in the majority of the cases, as of your fourth or fifth year, you can actually mostly spend your time in vascular surgery or cardiac surgery, depending on which hospital you're standing. It will change, hopefully rather soon, where it will move to like two or three years of general surgery, and then you can start your vascular surgery training. But at the moment, it's part of general surgery. So if you really want to have an official document that you're a vascular surgeon, you have to take the European board exam. And with the European board exam, do you get official recognition? In Belgium, it's not mandatory, but for example, I have Belgian colleagues who work in the Netherlands. And if you would like to work as a vascular surgeon in the Netherlands, you have to take that European board exam. So you can have a general surgery specialty plus a fellowship in vascular surgery. And if you have the board examination, you would be able to work in the Netherlands. Okay. But what you do see is that in the majority of the cases, I'm sure that's the same everywhere. After six years of general surgery, including vascular surgery, nobody finishes their training. So they all do at least two or three years of additional training, endovascular, open vascular, et cetera, to actually feel confident in being able to be a vascular surgeon. And that's why, for example, I moved to St. Mary's Hospital to do one year of clinical work. In global, how long does the training this? The training program, when I was in training, took about in total eight years. So six years of general surgery, including already vascular and an additional two years. What we see nowadays, because there are so many trainees on the market and not sufficient spots or consultant posts available, you see that the training is even prolonged. So people sometimes even do nine or 10 years before they finally get a job. So it's really become an issue. So what about in the UK? I've also heard that in the UK, it takes a long time to become a consultant. Yeah, it does. We've moved to having a vascular surgery curriculum in the higher surgical training years, but not so long ago. And so the trainees will come out of medical school. They'll do two years foundation program, which is four month rotations around different specialties, surgical and medical and in the community. And then most trainees will do a two year core foundation again in the surgical specialties. 
and then go on, if they get a national training number, on to a specialist training, starting at specialist training, ST3, going up to ST8 when they get their certificate of completion of training. Most people will, at some point during that time, come out and do a PhD and some research. If they don't do that, there'll be something else that usually fills that research time. And a lot of people do a fellowship, used to be exclusively in endovascular because everyone was worried about endovascular training. It's now a bit more specialised in terms of a lower limb training fellowship or an aortic training fellowship. And that gives them the opportunity to look towards specialisation in one of these fields or or to gain extra skills, which they wouldn't otherwise get in a general training scheme. Do the trainees there get specific time periods for research? Like, do you get 12 months to dedicate to research? Or is it something that is kind of expected, but you do on your extra hospital hours? Or how does it work? So no one's ever said it's expected. However, most people do it to become competitive for a consultant job in the UK It is necessary In some jobs, not in all of them, and it's not uh, mandatory by any means. What happens is that higher trainees will go through the specialist training year three and sometimes four, and then they'll take a research out-of-placement research sabbatical. And most people would do an MD for two years or a PhD for three years. Concurrently while they're finishing their specialty training or just independently? No, coming out, doing three independent years and then going back into the year that they would have gone into if they hadn't have done it. So how long is the training in total, Colin? That's even longer than Belgium. Well, it's supposed to be eight specialist training years and two foundation years, so 10 years. But with a fellowship and with a PhD, it extends itself quite a lot. Belgium is totally voluntary, so it's only a minority who does it. And they Mm. really take time out to do so. And at least one of those PhD years counts also as their clinical year because the majority does 80% research and 20% of clinical work. And they normally do a PhD within three to four years, but it's really a minority who does it. So it's not a prerequisite or it's not common to do that. And to work in a university hospital, it's not? It's not mandatory. It used to be requested if you want to move up the ladder and you want to become the chief of the department. At our hospital, actually, they're now talking about having the possibility that instead of really doing a PhD, that you can focus on management skills. You become like a manager and also become the head of the department without needing a PhD. So you can choose your pathway depending on what you would like to do. So you have three possibilities, clinical expert, scientifically, including the education most of the time, and management, and you can combine these. It's not going to be mandatory at all anymore to become a professor at the hospital. That's interesting, isn't it? You'd think that more people would take that management route and do a business studies or a management degree. It's just starting, so we'll see how that's going to go. But Do you have that possibility in the UK? Yeah, you can do. The only reason to get a PhD is not because it's mandated by any means, but to add an extra string to your bow so that you can assess evidence and research appropriately and say you've done something to further explore vascular surgery. But if someone wants to do something managerial-wise or explore health policy or teaching degree-wise, there are other excellent aspects of training that are well appreciated by interview panels. If you had to design an optimal residency programme, so to say, what would it look like? 
Well, from a Belgian perspective, I think I can say it should look completely different. I'm not saying that general surgery is not useful because you do feel you're quite comfortable if you have to get into the tummy and open surgery and somebody has been operated before or even in the chest. So I think general surgery can maintain in there. So maybe one or two year max. What I would personally love to see included is generic endovascular skills. So why do we only learn endovascular skills from vascular surgeons, but not from an interventional radiologist? That's not the case in Belgium or an interventional cardiologist. And also get some teaching about interpretation of imaging, which I think sometimes we're lacking as well. And the radiation safety principles, because that's a big issue. And then indeed, you can go on to your training. And then there's the question, do you need to have both open skills and endo skills? I still personally think you do, unless you can really work in a big facility where you can say, okay, this colleague is going to do the open. I'm going to focus on the endo. And the training, I think, should not be based on the fixed number of years, but more on how you are progressing and how good you become. So how proficient you will be. Would you have a assessment per number of procedures or just an assessment of the quality overall? An assessment of the quality. And I think even as tutors or mentors, we should be very honest that if you see that somebody may not have the ability, for example, to become a really big aortic surgeon, There's lots of other skills that are needed in vascular surgery, because if you ask somebody, what do you want to do? Everybody else says, oh, I want to do carotid aortic work. But let's just be honest, the increasing part is now the lower limb with all the diabetic people, et cetera. And we need plenty of people. And that's also quite challenging. So I think it's probably also important to decide where you want to go in your career, because we get more and more skills, more and more diseases we have to treat. And unless you're a superhuman, you can't be an expert in every single one of these. How would the ideal residency program look for you, Colin? So Isabel has said the number one idealistic residency program attribute, which is that it would be competency-based, wouldn't it? Based on whether you're talking about operative skill or patient management or any of the leadership and management aspects of the job. Ideally, then, you'd have a residency program where you start off with basic general and vascular open and endovascular skills. And as you are exposed to an equal number of each of these, because you'd have the perfect training program, uh, you would obviously develop competencies in some faster than others. And then your program would then be reactive to what you've learned and be able to Rather than shorten the training program or do something else, I think it'd shift you more towards where you're weaker to give you more exposure to your endovascular or open surgery, depending on where you're going. So it would have to be reactive to that. And it would need to be honest, as Isabel has said, we have a number of trainees who come through who are particularly good at one thing and not another thing, or obviously not going to progress further. And they need to be given every opportunity to progress further. And if not, they need to be honest in where they're going to end up. And I think that's, that's not a bad attribute for a training programme. So it has to be kind of reactive, has to be honest. It has to be very fair and strict. And it has to be fair throughout the country, which is very difficult to achieve. I think it should also be a very wide We often focus too much on skills within particular core operations, but there are, as we will discuss, I'm sure, many other competencies in terms of team working and leadership that we need to make sure are covered in that curriculum. If we really want to do such a modern training curriculum, the only thing that we have to take into account 
just because nowadays I think the majority of trainees, they really also function within the healthcare and really have a service contract. So they have to deliver in order to yeah. maintain the system. So that may have to be rethought in order to do so, because if you have to be flexible in what they will be doing, it may not always be easy to decide where somebody will be working. I agree entirely. I think it's fiendishly difficult to reach yeah. that perfect training program in any way, shape or form. And it will have to be a trade-off between what's available within London or within Newcastle or within Wales in terms of the hospitals and the training and, and the sort of competencies that you can achieve and what service is required as well. I don't think completely removing from service is actually necessarily that good a thing because following the patient through is a really important part and aspect of the job. So it's very difficult to organise, maybe impossible to do perfectly. How do you assess a competency? Because one of the things that I've heard is that it can be sometimes subjective. One of the countries I think that has a very good system is the Netherlands. I don't know if you heard about it. They have what they call the cash system. So everybody's in training as a vascular surgeon. On a yearly basis, they have to go to a center where they have lots of simulators and where all the tutors are present as well. And what they do is they evaluate the trainees. So, for example, you get a case and you have to discuss how you would handle that case and then show a particular skill or something and then discuss it afterwards with two tutors as well. But at the same time, also the tutor is being evaluated. So because we all know, and I'm sure you do as well, is some of your training may be influenced by your tutors in a positive or sometimes in a negative way. And so you don't always get the opportunities. And that feedback is actually given, first of all, after one year to teach people, okay, these, like Colin already said, these are your weaknesses, these are your strengths. And not only to the trainee, but also to the tutor. So the tutor knows that the next year they maybe have to reorganize the training as well. If you have to do assessments, they're prone to subjectivity unless you use validated rating scales or you use a simulator to assess people. But none of these are perfect. It's always a mixture of both. Ideally, you need to be evaluated numerous times by various consultants. So the subjectivity is less obvious, I believe. I think that if you have a consultant trainer who is engaged in the training of that trainee and engaged in the wider training aspects of the region or the country, you can have really, really good experience with training and assessment. I think that if you get a group of consultants together, as is now happening in the UK, which is, I hated this idea, but I actually quite like it now, where they discuss for a, a protected period of time all the different aspects of the trainee. You can get a really honest and a fairly wide view from different people with different opinions, which is rather good and can really guide the trainee. But it takes time and it takes effort. And I, I think we should pick our trainers very carefully. One of the things that all these fantastic ideas for training programs brings to mind is that they're very time dependent on the tutors or the training staff or the mentors. I don't know if that's a possibility in the UK and in Belgium, but it's not always in, in an everyday clinical kind of day to day. It's not always possible. Yeah, that's correct. I think we have some like more intensive workshops where you really focus on the trainee. If you're really busy in clinic, sometimes it's more challenging. Uh, but what we do have is that every trainee, even if you're a general surgery trainer or vascular surgical trainee, you can just always ask feedback after every intervention. 
and just sit down with your tutor and ask them, okay, did I prepare well? How was my plan? Was it correct? And how did I do? And what could I improve? What I think is still the weakness in Belgium is that the responsibility is with the trainee. So the trainee always has to request this. Well, this should become something that should be done in an automated fashion, I think. Personally, I still love it if nurses tell me, you know what, uh, maybe next time you, you could speak a bit clearer or be a little bit more clear about what you expect from me. But I think the same is true for the trainees. And I think we should just be honest. Uh, but as Colin said, it's not only in surgery, it's also about the rest. How do you manage the ward? How do you take uh, care of your patient postoperatively? How do you manage everything? What would your recommendations be in terms of dividing the amount of time dedicated to academic knowledge, surgical training and experience, the ward, research, teamwork, leadership? A hundred, a hundred, 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 hundred. Yeah. <laughs> I think it also depends again on your assessment. You know, if you're a very skilled or gifted surgeon, technically. You may have issues with your human factor skills, how you communicate, et cetera. So then you may have to focus more there. I think what we've seen is that our trainees sometimes have difficulties at this multitasking, running a ward, going to the theater. So we've actually stopped doing this with the younger ones. So we keep them one week in the ward and then the other week they're in the OR so they can really dedicate the time, prepare themselves. So they have to be less stressed about their other tasks. I think the academic part is important, but is not always regarded as important by the trainee, especially not when you're young. So they would prefer that the consultant tells them why they do something, how they do something, instead of sometimes looking it up in the literature. But I think all are important, like Colin says, and it's very difficult to give a percentage. I think at the moment, there's not enough, at least not in Belgium, on uh, communication and on team training. I think that's a real weakness and it's really important. I think what we do is almost an artificial question that so we do artificially divide our life into the academic questions and the physiological questions and the anatomy based questions and the skills based questions about how you do things. But in actual fact, what really happens is that you're presented with a case of a difficult aortic aneurysm. And you need to know the academic knowledge behind the trials, which base what our decision is on, and also some of the more basic science work. You need to know about the anatomy and how that pertains to the surgery and the skills in terms of doing the surgery and the results and all of these aspects. And so if you think about a method of learning, which is more case-based and more thinking about the patient from the very start to the very end, every single case involves an aspect of all of these things that you bring up. And so there is importance in every part and every part should be part of each patient that you deal with. And I guess that changes as you go through your career of learning rather in the, the very start. Of course, you have to learn all these trials and, and the next time there'll be be more obvious to you uh, what is needed. I fully agree that you have to learn all of these aspects, but you have to do it in a stepwise approach. Because if you're young, you get overwhelmed by everything at once. And of course, some of them are very bright and can just immediately manage and put these all together. But I think others really have difficulties looking at the decision-making process, gathering the information, and then still focusing on the surgery itself and, and how they even behave within the OR and then come up with a plan afterwards. So for some of them, it's, I think it's really overwhelming. So I think you really have to look at it from person to person and adjust it accordingly so you don't lose people because I know this is becoming something that increasingly occurs. 
with burnout of trainees and stuff like that. And I think it's the stepwise approach may be quite important. I think it's up to the tutor to look on how somebody's doing and steer them a little bit. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you, Colin, for joining us here today. And with this, we come to the end of the first part of this podcast. And we will be releasing part two, again with Colin and Isabel, very shortly. So please stay tuned. Stay tuned.